We're looking in Mark chapter 12 today. I'd invite and encourage all of your attention there. A message I call not far, but too far. Mark chapter 12, verse 32. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. There's one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that... No one dared question him. Not far, but too far. Our Sunday morning series has been dedicated to the Gospel of Mark. I have approached this under the general heading as gospel truth for a growing chaos because we live our lives every day in an increasingly chaotic world, disturbing world. There was no way that I could have known when we began this series last year what we would be going through in the world right now. Gospel truth for a growing chaos. In times like ours, we need to reorient ourselves to the truth of the gospel, reminding ourselves of who Jesus is, of what He has done, what He is doing, and praise God, what He is going to do in this world. It helps us then to have a right perspective, to be able to look clearly with understanding at the world around us. Like the Gentiles who came to Jesus in John chapter 12, uh, speaking to the disciples, they said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Oh, and that's our cry when we come together on Sunday morning. Our messages bring us to the time in the scripture that we call Passion Week. As Brother Wade told us, uh, uh, this is still a few weeks ahead in our calendar. Uh, But this is where we are in Scripture. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday at that incredibly significant moment. Entered the temple, the Bible said, looked around and left. He cursed then on Monday a fig tree and then entered into the temple and cursed and cleansed the temple as he pronounced judgment on the barren fig tree and on the barren temple as well. He would spend that day teaching in the temple and now in the chronology of our text it's Tuesday, still Tuesday. Jesus and the disciples came past the fig tree that he cursed on Monday And it was dead, the Bible says, dried up from the roots. He entered the temple and he was met by delegation from the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Jerusalem, asking him about his authority. Who who told you you could do this? (laughs) And I have to say it again. Jesus never asked for permission. Uh, Not once. Then a group came to him from the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, of course, the very conservative religious leadership in Israel. The Herodians were aligned with King Herod. They came with questions hoping to trap Jesus. One about the resurrection, one uh, about taxes. still Tuesday. Probably afternoon by now, Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees and Herodians and There was someone else standing there waiting in the background. 
He was listening to their conversation. He heard, overheard what Jesus said, what they asked, how Jesus responded. This man was a scribe. Now, the scribes were highly regarded religious professionals in the days of Jesus. Uh, the work of the scribes as a people began during the days of Ezra. Some of you have been studying Ezra and Nehemiah in your Sunday school classes. And in the days of Ezra, the scribes began the meticulous task of copying the Word of God. They had to do it by hand. And it was a very painstaking, very laborious process that they took incredibly seriously. Don't have time to go into that. Uh, but the scribes then came to be a very highly regarded people because they could write, because they were familiar with the words of Scripture. They then became kind of like our lawyers. When you needed a legal opinion on what the law said, you went to the scribes. If you needed a legal document written out, you went to the scribes. They, they were uh, very, very Official, very powerful, very well-respected people in the days of Jesus. Because they conducted matters of law then and were able to write out these legal documents and contracts of all kinds, they served a very important function. Matthew's account of this moment, though, gives us this about the scribes in Matthew 23 and 1. Jesus said the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Moses, you see, sat in a position of judgment over the nation. And so the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones now who occupied Moses' seat in the sense that he made uh, settled disputes and made decisions for them. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. The scribes. Now to put this time, this moment in perspective, the words of our text are the last that Jesus would speak in public during His last moments in the temple. After this experience, Jesus would turn His attention to His disciples and teaching them in that incredible passage that we know is the Olivet Discourse that we'll begin looking at next week. So this is his last sermon to the public. What would he preach about? Last sermon in the temple. What will he preach about? This incredibly significant moment really shouldn't surprise us since Jesus practically began His public ministry by going to the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and casting out those who bought and sold at exorbitant prices. You see, Jesus started His, money, his ministry in a way confronting that religious racket that was running in the temple. When He comes back then on His very last week, what did He do? He did it again, same thing. He went in and immediately confronted all of those people with the added deal. He wouldn't let anybody come through. I don't know how he stopped them, but he did. How did he walk on water? He did. He stopped them from carrying anything, no vessels, no water carried in the temple, shut the place effectively down and preached. And they all, of course, listened because he spoke like nobody else had ever spoken before. 
It shouldn't surprise us then that since Jesus started out this way in his public ministry, it shouldn't surprise us since then he started this week by confronting this religious racket in the temple when they turned God's house into their house. That this last message then would be a scathing indictment of those same religious leaders and the false religious system they had created. Matthew gave a much more detailed account of what happened this day. And in Matthew's account, he gives us a crucial detail to understand about this moment. In verse 14, Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Wow. Did Jesus say that to their face? And a whole lot more. Scribes and Pharisees were the most religious people in Israel. They were experts in law of Moses, the leaders of the people both politically and religiously, but they were lost. They were not saved. We know they were lost because they rejected Jesus Christ, they hated Jesus Christ, and would ultimately crucify Jesus Christ. They were exactly what Jesus said they were. They were the children of hell. The most religious people in Israel. Children of hell. In an earlier confrontation with this same crowd, Jesus said to them, John chapter 8 and verse 44, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. If the devil is your father, then you are a child of hell Again and again in Scripture, these are contrasted with those who are in the kingdom of heaven. And there's only one way you can become a part of the kingdom of heaven, and that is when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when you bow the knee to heaven's king and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how you become a citizen of the kingdom. You're born into it. And so here were those who were born into the kingdom of God contrasted then with those who are the children of hell. It's crucial to our understanding of what's going on in this passage that we understand Jesus is dealing with a group of religious leaders who have so corrupted the message and the truth of God's word, so corrupted the Old Testament law as they turned salvation into a system of works. They were lost, they were the children of hell, and they were leading others into that same condemnation, only worse. You make them twofold, Jesus said, twice as much the child of hell than you are. I'll tell you, I puzzled about that a long time. How can you be even more a child of hell, then, I mean, it just seemed like if 
I, I, I don't have a good explanation for you today. The only thing that I can think about is the fact that the scribes all knew the Scriptures and there was hope in their study of the Scriptures and then their learning of the Scriptures that ultimately they might see the truth and turn from their error and believe on Jesus Christ. But those poor, deluded people that couldn't read didn't know anything about what the Scriptures really said. All they had to go on was what the scribes told them. They told them wrong. Jesus' sin was confronting a system that had caused their leaders, the people who were the best, the brightest, to be the children of hell. And they were causing other people to go to hell. Literally, the last message that he would preach in that temple, at that place, the last message he would preach publicly, He dealt with these religious leaders and their false system. And he does it through four scenes. Now one of those, the last one we're just going to touch on today, but we're going to pull these three together as God blesses and helps us. We'll be able to see then how he deals with the scribe himself. We'll see then how he preaches a sermon as he goes into a message and and preaches that message publicly about the scribes and their false religious system. He gives an example of what it was doing to the the people with the poor, impoverished widow woman. A sinful widow who gave her whole living. And then the last scene is one of the stones of the temple. Let's go through these this morning. First of all, we'll notice Jesus dealing with the scribe. As he came asking Jesus the question, you know, which is the greatest commandment? This is a question they ask a lot. It's there in verse 28. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, the words that Jesus recited are known to the Hebrews as the Shema. It it comes from the word uh, that says hear, hear. That's in Hebrews the word Shema. And so it came to be the title of a prayer because this was a prayer that the Jewish people in Jesus' day, the Jewish people for a hundred or however many generations before had prayed. And even still today, morning and night, the Orthodox Jewish people will pray This prayer, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's given to them as a constant reminder that there is one God, and our responsibility to this one God is to love Him. Jesus would say on these two commandments, also to love our neighbor, as he added, as he did in other times when he was asked this question. On this, he said, hang all the law and the prophets. The whole substance of the Old Testament law then is summarized in these two commandments. You love God, love your neighbor. The problem is, of course, that there was no way that even these two commandments could be faithfully observed. They would always and continually fall short of them. We still do. We still do. 
Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's where those words are found. God told them that these words must go beyond something that they wrote down on paper. They must be written on your hearts. They were to write them, yes, on the doorposts of their dwellings. They were to write them on their gates. They were to continually recite them unto their children. But even then there was a warning in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build houses full of all good things which you did not fill hewn out wells which you did not dig vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant when you have eaten and are full when you have eaten and are full when you have eaten and are full then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out what a warning Moses gave and that warning reaches out across all of these centuries today You see, there'd always be a tendency among God's people to get so busy enjoying the the blessings that God gives to us that we'd forget or neglect the God who is the source of those blessings. When Jesus then recited the Shema to this scribe, there was, of course, agreement on his part. The scribe then said, "You've, you've said well. Uh, This is more important, he said, than all of the law, than all of the sacrifices. To love the Lord our God, to love your neighbor. Oh, yes, this is good, the scribe said. And when Jesus saw that he answered this way, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. You see, the truth of those two statements... The truth of those two statements should serve as a summary of the whole law. All of the law of Moses, every bit of it, could be summarized in those two things. It's teaching us about how we are to relate to our God and how we are to relate to our fellow man. Everything in the law is wrapped up in those two things. And so he could not, of course, boast. He should not have been able to boast to say, like the rich young ruler did that we saw a while back, Oh Lord, all these things I've done my whole life. No, he hadn't. But that's exactly, exactly the spirit that was evidenced by this scribe. You see the statement, Oh yes, this is my responsibility. This is greater than all of the sacrifices. This is greater than all of the burnt offerings. Like God said to Saul so many years ago, To obey is better than sacrifice. Oh, but they're not obeying. You see, the reality of those two things demanded a response. And the response was, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, the law still does today what it has always done. It reminds us and points out our sin. It shows us that there's no way that we can live up to that. Is there one single person in this building today who would say, yes, I love God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength, and I love my neighbor like I love myself? Could any of us make that boast? No. No. No, we can't. So the response that was demanded at this moment by the scribe was to repent and believe the gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus came on the scene preaching in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15. Repent and believe the gospel. How close was that scribe to the kingdom? 
He could reach out and touch it. It was right there in front of his face. He could have fallen at his feet and wrapped him up. How close was it to the kingdom? Right there. Right there. What a moment this is. This scribe had recited the words that Jesus quoted every day of his life since he was old enough to talk legibly. He had learned to pray this prayer. They were in his mind. They were on his lips. But they were not in his heart because he was a child of hell and not in the kingdom. For Jesus to have said, you're not far from the kingdom, he'd answered wisely. You know he was feeling something in his heart. No doubt the same thing that had prompted Nicodemus long before to come to Jesus sneaking in at night, saying, Lord, we know you're sent from God. We know you're a teacher from heaven. There had to have been something going on in this scribe's heart. But though he was not far from the kingdom of heaven, what did he do? He did what so many had before him and what so many have since. They turned away and went away. He was not far from the kingdom. But he was too far. To have got in the kingdom, he would have had to acknowledge his sin. He couldn't do that. He would have had to ask for forgiveness. couldn't do that. He would have had to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wouldn't do that. Jesus dealt with the scribe. Then there's the sermon. Verse 35, Jesus answered and said, While he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes. The psalm that Jesus is quoting in this passage is found in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a prophetic psalm. It's a famous psalm because it is where God not only speaks or where David spoke of my Lord, the Lord said unto my Lord. And that is the same psalm where God said, you are a priest forever. The Lord hath sworn, he says, and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. So this psalm then that Jesus presents and preaches this message about is the one that declares that not only is the Messiah the son of David, but he is also the Lord of David, and that this Messiah, son of David, Lord of David, King of Israel, would also be the great priest who has an eternal and unchanging priesthood. Thou art a priest forever. Oh, it was a mystery, and the scribes had no answer to it, and Jesus knew it. The answer to this great mystery, though, was standing right in front of them. 
He had a name, Jesus. You say, what was the mystery? Well, Jesus was born in the lineage of David. That was the tribe of Judah. Therefore, he was not qualified to be a priest. And yet the Messiah was going to combine all three of the spiritual leadership positions in Israel. He would be both prophet, king, and priest. And they couldn't figure out how can he be both the king and of the tribe of, of, of Judah and the lineage of David and yet be a priest forever. There was no allowance for that. And in fact, there were a couple of occasions when the kings tried to be priests and it didn't work out too well for them. It was a mystery. <laughs> and so Jesus took his text from Psalm 110 and began to preach about it. How would you like to have been in that crowd that day and heard Jesus preach that message to the people? <laughs> oh, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I hope God recorded it. I want to hear it someday. What a sermon that was. For Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah of Israel, to stand there before them and explain this great Old Testament mystery. No wonder the Bible says that the common people heard him gladly. I bet they did. What an amazing sermon that was for Jesus to preach it. And he was doing, why did he do that? He was just trying to tell them that the scribes were ignorant of the Messiah. David said unto my Lord. But there was the Lord of David and the son of David. The priest after the order of Melchizedek standing right in front of him. And the scribes weren't calling him Lord. So he goes on, verse 38. He said to them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats and the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feast which devour widows' houses. For pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Jesus would go on to give a long rebuke of these leaders, it goes far beyond what Mark said or what Mark records. This was a time where he called them again and again and again, hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe unto you again and again and again. This is where he called them a brood of vipers, snakes. It's where he called them whitewashed sepulchers. Graves with the outside cleaned up, but inside full of death and corruption and decay. Matthew did record this. I think it's significant for the moment. Verse 4, Matthew 23. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. You see, their system of works, of keeping law, of commandments, born out of tradition upon tradition upon tradition upon tradition, perverted the whole purpose of the law. And it led them to a system built on performance where they did the right things. They did the important things. They did what they thought was crucial. And by doing these things, they guaranteed their right standing before God. But inside they knew they had to know their hearts were not right with God. 
Remember, Paul the Apostle was one of these Pharisees. And remember what Jesus said to him when he called him down on the road to Damascus. He said, Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the ox goads. And he's talking about how they would gold an animal and the animal would kick back. But the more it kicked, the deeper it gouged him. What was Paul kicking at? The law was beating him up inside. The law, the reality of it. When he looked at himself in the mirror, he knew that he was not keeping the law. And it was tearing him up inside. He knew it. These other religious leaders knew it too. On some level, they had to know. All the while, that they were teaching all these other people to do this, do this, do this, do this. They were the children of hell. And they were leading others into that same fate. So in addition then to all that Mark gave us, he gave us two things. He, number one, he said that the, that the scribes and Pharisees are doing this only uh, for uh, appearances sake. Uh, they're, they're doing it to be seen of men. They're, they're just keep going through the motions. They're, they're, they're just going through these motions. They're, they've got this religious observance that they have to do. They have to keep the rules. They have to follow the rules. And they're going through this to be seen of men. But then he mentions one more thing. Only one. Now, you want to read Matthew 23? Don't do it right now. Do it later on. I'd encourage you to. Because it's a long passage. But all that Mark mentioned was one other thing. They devour widows' houses. Everything else, their prayer life, their enlarging of the borders of the garments, everything else was just a show. But they devoured widows' houses. Isn't it interesting then that the next scene is a scene of the poor, sinful widow. Isn't that interesting? Reckon the Holy Spirit wants us to notice that? I think He probably does. I don't think He probably does. I know He does. So Jesus dealt with the scribe. Then He preached a sermon. Now He's dealing with this poor sinner. Well, Jesus preached his sermon and he went over by the place. The place they, they had these huge jars that they uh, would bring in uh, and money and, and put in the money. The, the purpose of this was the building project for the temple. Remember, they were still building on Herod's temple when Jesus was there. It would not be completed until somewhere 68 or 69. I mean, just a couple of years uh, after it was finally completed, then it would be torn down. So they, uh, under this huge, huge, building program had to be financed somehow and the way they did that is they had these huge jars and people would come by and put their offering in and on a really good day can you imagine an offering and most of this was gold and silver some of obviously was bronze but on a good day they, they might have to dump those things out several times there's a lot of money coming in One poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. I'm glad the Bible tells us that, so it, it gets us oriented to what two mites are. What are two mites? It's a quadrant, of course. Oh. 
Some of your translations might say farthing. So he called his disciples to him and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. But they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now this story has been utilized far beyond its meaning within the context of this passage. Remember Jesus is confronting the false religious system of his day. And one of the hallmark key provisions of that false religious system was the teaching that the rich had an inside track to heaven. The rich could give more offerings. The rich could buy the most expensive sacrifices. And so obviously they considered the rich people to be blessed, to be enjoying the favor and blessings of God. They could give large offerings and they had been taught that the giving of large offerings and the offering of valuable sacrifices then guaranteed them a sure path to heaven. Remember when Jesus confronted the rich young ruler and he told the disciples it is easier for a rich man, to, for a camel rather, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And the disciples were shocked. I mean, they were shocked. It blew them away because that confronted everything they'd been taught all of their life who had been teaching it to them. The scribes. The scribes had. And so they said, well, well if, if a rich man can't be saved, who can be? Because their whole system of thinking was that the rich by being able to give so much were guaranteed the further blessings in favor of God. Remember Jesus said the scribes devoured widows' houses. Now at least a part of that may well have referred to some legal shenanigans that they were able to pull in order to, to get the property of, of poor people uh, by unscrupulous means. That, that's very possible that that was part of it. But within the context, I think Jesus shows us very clearly how they devoured the scribes' widows' houses. Two mites makes up a, a farthing or a quadrant. Earlier in the Gospels, we were taught that uh, two sparrows were sold for a farthing for this amount of money, quadrant. Five, Luke's account says, five, farthing, five sparrows were sold for two. So get the, <laughs> this practice goes back a long way. It, it's two for a farthing, five for two farthings. Uh, that, that's how to, two mites make up a quadrant or a farthing. Two mites. <clears throat> I think probably we could surmise if, 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 if two uh, went for two mites, uh, one could probably be three. I, you know, the, the more you buy, obviously, the cheaper it was. Two mites could buy a sparrow, maybe two. I looked at a sparrow a couple of times this week, and I thought about, you know, there's not a lot of meat on them things. <laughs> uh, 
uh, it might help you a little bit more if you thought, you know, uh, the two mites was enough to buy about three grapes in their days. It was the smallest coin ever officially minted in history that we've ever found or known anything about was the mite. Two. I bring that to your attention today so you would know that had she kept all of that, it would not have bought her a snack for even one meal. It was insufficient for anything. It would not pay any bills. It would not do anything for her. She couldn't buy wheat with it, not flour, not oil, nothing. And yet Jesus said she gave it all. It was all she had. He recognized the extravagance of her gift, but it didn't change the purpose. She put it in the huge jars, right along with all the other wealthy people who were putting in their huge offerings. It was dedicated to financing the building of the temple, both the large gifts of the rich and the incredibly meager yet extravagant gift of this poor widow would go to the same fund, the Temple Construction Building Fund. Jesus would leave the temple that day never to return to it. Unless He was actually the one who went and split the veil in two from top to bottom. Could have been Him. His last message is recorded in Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left unto you desolate. He had said that before in Luke chapter 10. He says it again here. Your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, this poor sinful woman gave all she had. Everything. She gave everything she had to a corrupt religious system used to finance a desolate temple, devoted to a false religion that was condemning people to hell if she truly believed what she had been taught, that the giving of this offering then was going to give her a track to heaven, or at least some promise of heaven, if she thought by performing these religious rituals, by doing what she had been taught to do, which included the giving of this offering, all that she had, that that was going to give her to heaven, if she really believed that, as she had been taught, She was a child of hell. And it didn't matter that she had given everything she had. She was still a child of hell. Because salvation's not for sale. Give all you got. It's not enough. But thank God that's not even what's required of us because Jesus Christ has paid it all for us. Jesus neither condemned nor commended this woman. He simply pointed out she has given all she has, but what an example that is of how the scribes were devouring widows' houses 
Because they were teaching them that you can give this to God and He'll turn it around to you as a blessing. It was not enough for her to even buy a snack. But hey, you know, if you give it to God, then God will give it back to you, multiply it over. It was a scam. It was a scam in the first century when Jesus was here. It's still a scam today. It's all it's ever been. Describe the sermon, the poor sinner. And I'm done almost. The stones. After Jesus went through all of this, he leaves out. The disciples come to him and say, See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left on another that shall not be thrown down. Wow. This poor woman gave everything she had to a corrupt religious system. Her heart may have been right. She may have been sincere. But if she sincerely thought that by giving everything she had to God that it was going to buy God's favor and blessing, she was sincerely wrong. She was as wrong as the rich people coming in, dropping in their treasure chest full, and making sure somebody blew a trumpet so everybody would see. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. So Jesus pronounces the judgment of the temple and they ask Him a question. might interest you to know that next week we'll begin looking at the time when Jesus gave the longest answer to any question He was ever asked in His entire earthly ministry. The whole Olivet Discourse. We have no idea how long the discourse or the discussion lasts. We don't know. He's going to talk to them about what is the sign of your coming? What is the sign of the end of the world? What is the sign, Lord? How will we know when it's time for all these things to pass? And I know of no more crucial questions for us to be answering at this moment in time than these. And thank God we don't have to make it up for ourselves because we have the word of Jesus Christ to show us. We'll look at that next week. Jesus' last message then in the temple brought up the Shema. He moved to Psalm 110 to preach a sermon and delivered a brutal denunciation of the doctrine of those who were the children of hell and condemning others to hell because of their works-based system of righteousness. It further corrupted their teaching that by giving money, it guaranteed their salvation and could buy them God's favor. American Christianity today is so awash with this same nonsense that it may never recover itself. And so it is my responsibility today to remind all of you, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength in thy neighbor as thyself. Why do we come to church? Why do we give our money? Why do we give our time in acts of service? 
Why do we show kindness to our neighbors? Why do we do all these things? Do we do them so that God will bless us? Do we somehow believe that if I give to God, that God's going to give more back to me? If you don't believe it, I'll tell you, you are turning your ears away from a message that is trumpeted on every television station and television set 24 hours a day in the United States of America today. Give your money to God. God will give you more back. Sow your seed of faith. Miracles are for sale. That message is preached everywhere these days. Multitudes in America are buying into it. Do we come to church to be blessed? Do we come to church to be made happy? Do we come to church to have a good time? Why do we do what we do? There's only one reason that is legitimate. We do what we do because we love God. That's it. If I come to church and get happy, that's a bonus. If I give to God and He blesses me back and I get more, that's a bonus. Because listen, the only reason we do any of it is because we love the Lord our God. If there's any other reason into it, then the whole thing is corrupt. We do it because we love God. I wish I had another hour. I'd preach another sermon about the Old Testament book of Job because this is the first book written in the Bible. I'll just give you a quick Reader's Digest condensed version. First book written in the Bible. And it is built around a question that the devil proposed. God said, look at Job, how he serves me. The devil says, the only reason, God, that Job serves you is because you bless him. And if he, you quit blessing him, He'll curse you. It's the whole thing. You see, the devil believes that our motive is corrupt and the world believes our motive is corrupt. And it's no wonder because so many people are preaching this corrupt motive. Oh, God help us to draw a line in our hearts and say, God, it's not going to be that way for me. I'm going to go to church, God, because I love you. I love you. I'm going to give because I love you. I'm going to serve because I love you. If you bless me, thank you. If I die, I'll die trusting you. And I'll live out the simple truth. Then to live is Christ and to die is what? Amen. Quite the passage here today, isn't it?